Hey, how's it going? I'm Nick, the host of the Echo Academy podcast. A podcast where we tap into the world's collective wisdom and experience to learn how we can be more resilient. In this episode, I speak with former pro footballer turned entrepreneur, R. Sasikuma. Sasi was also my boss during my time at Red Card Global. So I had a front row seat to the entrepreneur life, both the good and the bad. This conversation focuses on Sasi's role as a mentor to athletes transitioning away from sports after retirement. A good lesson on transitions for all of us, I think. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Sasi. I, yeah, I mean to 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 get started in the on, on the podcast proper, you know. I, I think before before, I mean we we all know you as a as a you know former Lions footballer and you know and a successful businessman after. But I suppose something I've always been interested when I ask when I speak to athletes is what is the hardest part about being an athlete that I guess we may not appreciate as you know, supporters or, or sports enthusiasts, if you will? Yeah, that's actually a very good question. Um, I think being an athlete, um, I suppose everyone and anyone can actually play sport, right? Uh, yeah. Anyone can actually go and kick a ball or pick up a racket or swim. What makes the athlete different, I think, is the mindset, right? Uh, it will reach a point where a lot of people will stop because of either pain or they are not good at something. Um, they can't get to the next level of that sport. 99% of them will stop there. Uh, the ones that become good are the ones that keep going. Right? They break the barrier and then they become what we call professional athletes. So that fine line is decisions you make in life. Like, is this for me? Of course, you ask, is this for me? Is this what I want? Right, because then you might you might reach a point where you have a lot of options. Like maybe you want to pursue a life academically. You want to say, I want to go to the university. I want to be a doctor, lawyer, whatever profession. Then, or you might just get distracted to say that eh, this is too much. Now I got to train every day. I got to dedicate my life. I got to eat well. I can't go out partying and stuff like that. I got to take care of my body. Just a little bit too much for me. I like the finer things in life, so I'm I'm going to take a different route. But those athletes that actually get to the top. And I think a lot of it is not really discussed openly, not enough at least. If you ask top athletes or at least athletes who turn pro and play for the national teams, what, what, what is the thing that you know, makes a difference? Is because the, the mindset to achieve, the mindset to be successful, I think is the one that is the key difference. I'll give you an example, maybe a story to, to share so that it make, make it a bit more real, right? Um, so... Even in my own life, my brother, who's two years older, was much talented than me. He's got a very sweet left foot. He was a footballer. I followed him around playing football. Even when we were playing in our you know, early days, when we played for our, our, our village team, our, 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 you know, our neighborhood team, right? He was always the outstanding player and he was always picked first. And even as, as we progressed and we got older, he was always getting picked to different teams, uh, national age group teams, and then eventually playing. Um, I would say what was 
Premier League football back then, which was semi-professional. But I was the guy that was always chasing him. Right? I'm looking at him going like, I, I need to do better. He's my brother, right? I got to do better. I got to do better. But I didn't have the necessary skill sets like him. But what I had was the, the hunger for success, right? I wanted to be, be very good at what I did um, very badly, even though I didn't have the skills. So it, it's quite ironic in some ways where you think like, I'm going to be the best. I'm going to reach the top of the game when you actually didn't have the skills to do it. You didn't have the tools to do it. So I start to realize that, okay, if I, if I don't have the skills, then what else must I do? And looking back now, I mean, as we, and you would probably resonate with this, at 15, 16, 17, we all don't know what we're going to be doing. Like, we all are lost, right? We just do what we want. And hopefully something happens, right? <laughs> That's what we think about, especially yeah. if you're not that academically good in school. Um, not, not that I was, I was completely useless in school. It's just that it didn't interest me. Like, things didn't interest me, right? Uh, except for a few topics that, and subjects that I really like. But I was always into sports, playing hockey, running for school, football, and stuff like that. So I wanted to excel, be really good at something. And, and football was the, my first love. Like, I used to grow up watching all the Malaysia Cup heroes and stuff like that and say, if they can do it, okay, what's the difference? Why I can't do it? Like, they're just like me and all that. Okay, maybe they're a little bit skillful. So I paid attention to my strength. My strength was my, I suppose, my ability to not give up. And I knew that I always had it. I, I worked really hard. And that hard work comes from my dad because I seen my dad, you know, work long hours as a taxi driver. So I picked up those skills from him. Uh, I mean, as kids, you only learn from your parents, right? So I picked that up from my dad. And I said, if I really applied myself and I tried as hard as I could, maybe something might happen, right? <laughs> maybe something might happen. So that's what I did. So when my brother got to a level, he started to slack. He started to sit at home and not train as hard. And I took that as a motivation to, to train harder and harder and harder and using him as my benchmark to say, I got to do better and better and better. And then in a very short space of time, I became a, a national team player. So coming back to the question of what people really don't know is that ability to work through pain, work through disappointments, humiliation. And my journey hasn't been as straightforward as a lot of people thought it was. Like, you know, when I was playing for one of the teams in my early days, um, people used to tip telling me you're a tall guy, you're clumsy, you know, <laughs> you can't play. You know? So as a young kid, you start to question yourself a lot, right? Especially when you don't have the support system like what a lot of athletes have these days, right? You're just left to yourself. And then if you're not mentally strong, you just take the easy route out. So I suppose I'm very thankful and grateful that I somehow, I don't know how, but I had the the presence of mind to say that I, this is what I wanted. doesn't matter what the world said about me. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep trying. So I really worked hard at the game, like really, really worked hard. At it. And then I got my break. So I, I suppose the 99% of the people in this world, whether, you know, whether they reach the heights of business or academics or sports, they give up halfway, right? They don't see, they don't finish the race. Right, because uh, when life throws some obstacles, challenges, they just say, put up their hand and say, "Okay, that's it. You know, <laughs> let me let me go somewhere else." Because it's painful, it's hard. We all know that, and our human brain is, you know, for for years and years and years, millions of years, has been trained to preserve energy. Of course, not be disappointed, survival and stuff like that. The true champions are the ones that have that breakthrough. The true champions are the ones that keep going and. Uh, that's been well documented. If you look at the top, top athletes in the world, 
they all had some sort of setback in their life from Michael Jordan to Cristiano Ronaldo, you name it, right? They all had the journey worth telling. That's because there was one point in their life they had to decide and they decided that they were going to go and be the best at what it is. So I suppose that was, that was what I did. And I think that's something that a lot of people might be aware that this happens, but they don't know how it works behind the scenes or what works in the head, right? Yeah. What, what's, re- what's really the, the dialogue you're having your, with yourself in your head on a daily basis, if only it can be captured and, you know, maybe played out like a movie, it'll be such an interesting movie to watch. Right, right. I, I'm curious because as you said, wondering what were said, what were some examples of periods where your mindset and your confidence or your or your determination was 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 put to the test. L- loads of experiences, but I'll, I'll tell you one one specific one. Right, so um, I was playing for a team called Gibraltar Crescent, which is in the north of Singapore. Right, um, I've I've. I've done really well in the mini league. I was in a combined schools team. So I played in the, what, what they call the Island Wide League now for High Saint Park Rangers. The late Majid Arif was my coach. He got, got me to a level where I thought, okay, now I'm, I'm ready to play big boys football. Then this club picked me up, which was closer to my home. When I started to play for them, and they had this culture where it was, back then it was a very... Um, um, I, not, now you would call it toxic. Now I, I'm pretty sure you people call it a toxic culture, right? <laughs> Back then it was accepted. It was a way of life. There was football, school of hard knocks and stuff like that. Uh, but also I think what they didn't realize that they were not inspiring at all and they didn't motivate young people to be the best. So they saw a child or a, or a player for what he is today. Like he can pass the ball well, he's, uh, he, he's just good today. But they didn't see the guys like me that, oh, maybe this guy has potential. They had no time for that. Yeah. Right? They no, had no time for that. So, so I fell into that bracket where you're nowhere. Like you're, you're last in the packing order, even though you're in the team. So stuff like, I'll give you another nice story. I don't know if it's nice, but this is a story worth telling. Uh, we were going to be playing at the Jalambasa Stadium, right? And we're waiting for the bus. And the kid man runs up to me and says, go and buy ice from the, from the coffee shop. He says, here's a couple of dollars. So I passed my, my bag, my football bag, to my teammate and said, pick it up and put it in the house. I'll go and buy the bus. Uh, I'll go and buy the ice. So I ran to the coffee shop. And as a young kid, you've got to do all these, right? These days, yeah. players don't do that. But we had to do it. Uh, it was a passage of, uh, right, a passage for us. So when I went there, the ice was not ready. So I had to wait for these guys to prepare. So it took a while. Maybe it took about 10 minutes and I was waiting. And I picked up the ice. And as I, as I came back, the bus had already left. <laughs> Because the team didn't want to be late for, yeah. for meetings. But, so I didn't have cash on me. I, have, I was like carrying blocks of ice. And what do I do? I mean, I'm a, I'm a kid, right? I'm like uh, 18, 19, like, you know, 18 years old, I think, at the time. Like, what do I do, right? So, and, and I ended up taking a, a flagging now a taxi, you know, telling the taxi driver my, my story and take me to Jalambasa. When we get there, I'll, I'll organize. So, so I went there. I got to the stadium and then obviously <laughs> half the ice is already melted. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're taking in and all the players are laughing at you. And then the kid man comes up and say, you know, uh, you must be the stupidest guy on earth. Like, even though it's not your own fault, then they start to hammer you. Like, just say, you know, just put you down, right? So you, you, you do all of that and then you, you're really deflated. Something that you don't need before a game, right? You need to be in the correct frame of mind. 
So sitting there, I mean, even when I'm thinking about it, I'm like, oh man, it was it was tough, right? So you sit there in the corner as a as a as a player. So you don't have self worth, and these are moments where you your your I suppose your worth is taken away from you because you're in a peer group, right? And 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 for 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 guys like me that came from almost nothing, we come from a very humble background. The only thing left with you is a bit of pride, right? That's all you have left. Uh, and then when it's taken away in such a, a manner in a in a group setting, uh, it can be quite hard. It can be quite uh, you know it can really break your spirit. Uh, but I, I you know again like I said I, I don't know how I bounced back from that. But I I suppose I was very single minded then also. I'm like okay this is part of life. You got to carry on with it. You know you got to move on. Uh, but something really amazing happened. So with that team I was playing for the under 19s and. Uh, the national team scouts at that time um, came to look, to, came to watch me play, and I, I, I was, I was pretty good at that level. Like nineteen, I was really good. I was because my physical presence and stuff like that. And they actually invited me to the Singapore B team trial, right? So I'm talking about the Malaysia Cup team and the Singapore B team. The competition there, it's like it's not like now. <laughs> like they got fifty players who can walk into the national team anytime. So. Um, so much so that when the letter came to the club to invite me to the team, they couldn't believe it was me. <laughs> because there was another, another player that had the same name, uh, Sashi Kumar, maybe you would know him. He was yeah. my teammate. He was really playing in the, in the first team. They said, has to be him. It can't be you. Um, but when they confirmed it was me, I, I went there and eventually made the team um, and then went to Indonesia with the team and then you know, the rest is history, right? Yeah. But, uh, but that, those are turning points in your life. I really felt that this, you know, when I look back now, and look at my my football career, and those are pivotal moments in your life that actually completely change you. Some call it the butterfly effect, and and I think yeah, you know, it's just uh, being in the right place, right time, having the right, being in the run, right mental state of mind. Because you can be in the right place at the right time, but if you don't approach the task or that you know you're supposed what you're supposed to be doing, uh, approach it with the right mind frame. I think a you would have lost the opportunity. B, you let yourself down, right? So you're like, oh, I waited for this all my life, but now I'm here and that opportunity is gone because my, my head is not right. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a really interesting story, man. I, 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 it's, it's, it's amazing the, the, the challenges that we go, like Singaporean footballers go through and how even though maybe the challenges change the circumstances, I mean, even though the circumstances change, the challenges are still around. Like, mm. I feel like sometimes there's, a, there's, there's not much progress there, but I guess that's a, that's a discussion for another time. <laughs> that's another topic altogether. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, what's interesting enough, I was, I was trying to get uh, this person as a podcast guest, but she was, she's really busy this year, but she's the New York Yankees uh, sports psychologist. And she actually told me something really interesting because she, when we had a Zoom call, she she did a study with you know one of those like PhD um, psychologists or sociologists, and they did a comprehensive study on all like American athletes from the good to the bad, and what they found was that not, not, or even the the top players never perform well under pressure or during high perf- you know high consequence games like finals or stuff like that you know everyone regardless of who they are either in those high pressure situations perform at the same level they are capable of or below no one outperformed anyone 
And so what they said was, you know, so when they looked across, looked at the data, what they realized was that it wasn't that your Jordans and your LeBrons or whatever were outperforming people. It's just that they were more consistent. That's it. Like, yeah. They just learned. They learned what it took to be consistent during any type of situation. And they just did that. And I, for me, I, maybe you as an athlete probably knew that already. But for me, it was like a profound thing to, to learn. No, I think, you know, you're spot on. I think you hit the, the nail in the head uh, by saying consistency is everything. Like, uh, that's definitely something that I learned from from football. And, uh, you know, they always say that football, you're only as good as your last game, right? So I kind of brought that into my business space where I say we're as good as our last project or the last deal you sign or the last pitch you made. So it's always ringing in the back of my head. You know, sometimes we get lazy, we forget about it. But it, that's what it is. You've got to be consistent. What does consistency mean? getting up early, doing the routine, doing the work, putting in the hours and, you know, seeing results because that's consistency. If you drop some level down and you expect the same level of output, it's not going to happen. Like it's just not going to happen. That's not the way it works, right? So I suppose when you look at, you know, a lot of the athletes that I played with, the, the guys that lasted long was because they had consistency. Uh, I finished playing at 29 because I was not that I wasn't consistent, I wasn't consistent with my motivation. My motivation was not constant. It came to a point where I was consistent with the routine, but my motivation wasn't consistent anymore because I was really looking at what's life ahead for me. You know, so there are clear indications of those things. Yeah. Oh, that's a, actually, that's a good point. You know, uh, it, there's consistency in many aspects, you know, motivation, purpose, meaning, your routine and stuff like that. That's a good point. I'm going to remember that. Um, but but the, I suppose things, and this is why I wanted to, to have a conversation with you, is that one of the things that professional athletes struggle with is, is the life after retirement from that professional aspect of the game, you know. And I'm curious from your experience and from your experience with, with the people you've worked with and also the people you've played with, like, why is that the case? Uh, you know, Nick, the, being a professional athlete in itself, it's a privilege, right? Because like I said, only 1% reach to the top of the game. And after you get there, right, staying there is also quite hard, like being consistent, right? But what also happens is that you live in a bubble. You live in a bubble where professional athletes, everything is done for you, right? So from booking of flights, you turn up for training, everything's laid out for you. In some cases where, you know, they feed you, they clothe you, everything is done for you. You pretty much live a routine, you do what you're supposed to do best, and then you go home and you pick up your wages at the end of the the month. So this becomes a habit. Like anything in life, it becomes a habit. So your life is based around what? Training for five days, playing on the weekend. Your years are not calendar years, your years are actually seasons. Right, going from one season to the other, off season, then going pre-season. That's how your mind starts to think, and that's what my life was for many years. People talk about holidays. The people talk about Easter, Deepavali, New Year's. No, ours is in season, off season, pre-season, and that's it. <laughs> you know, uh, nothing else. And then, so, yeah. so when you are trained that way for many, many, many years, and you kind of earn a decent wage more than your peers. So you, you kind of get into this bubble where you think that, you know, this is going to last forever. I can play one more year. I can play one more year. I can play one more year. And then next thing you know, you're 35. You're looking around like, 
oh my god, the, the, that's the end of the road, right? Yeah. So, but the ones that actually do well are the ones that actually start thinking about it when they are co- closing in on about twenty nine thirty, when they, they need to start to renew the end of the lifespan contracts, like the last contract you're going to be signing, right? Then you start thinking. For me, it was very different because I was forced out of the game. Right? I was forced to do, and at that point in time, it was like the worst thing that can ever happen to you. The world comes to an end, you're depressed. But when I look back, it was, again, the butterfly effect. Once, one thing that happened to me in my life that I will be so thankful for is getting my contract cancelled at Tampines Rovers when I was there. I cannot begin to tell you how important that uh, event was in my life because it completely changed the trajectory of my career afterwards. Right. So to give to to give you some context, I you know obviously played with uh, a few of the championship winning teams. In two thousand and one, I wanted to try my luck in Europe, so I left for Europe. Um, I'm sorry, I'm being a little bit long winded here because I want it's to okay. give you some context. Yeah, I yeah, want to give course. you some context on to, to this. So I went to Europe. I tried in France. I could have made it because of some complications with the agent and stuff like that. Didn't end up signing. Came back. All the other contracts were taken up. Then I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? Nothing left to do. So I ended up playing part-time for Jurong FC at that time. Started to build something on the side. The first thing I attempted was to build a website. And this is 2001 where it was, you know, you're still coding HTML and I was no guys. I, was, I, wasn't, I didn't have the expertise, but I was leaning on somebody. That, that was my fi- kind of first foray into life after football. And then I had a fantastic year that year. Um, played uh, 31 games of 33. Was the captain of the team. Lead them to the Singapore Cup final. Very next day, I got a um, contract offer from Tampines Rovers. We actually played in the cup final and lost to. And that was the biggest contract of my life ever, right? They offered me money that I was like, wow, okay, I got to play. You know, so moved there for two years. Unfortunately, things didn't go the way because the coach that signed me got sacked. Other guy came in, all thing went uh, pear shape. And then at the end of the year, the club said, I wanna, we want to get rid of you. Now we said, okay, you know, and like pay me out. I'm simple as that. I will carry on playing. Uh, but unfortunately, this, this again dragged on. Um, then I, I had to stop because my, cancel, my contract got cancelled. I had to stop. No club picked me up. And I was really depressed for that, for that six months, right? Really depressed for six months. Like, what am I going to do? I didn't end my career the way I wanted it. Luckily enough, uh, Steve Darby from Home United called me and said, would you like to come and be part of the squad? At least you can finish your career the way, you know, most pros deserve to finish. So I finished that. And at that point in time, I offered to, to move to Australia to work. So I was a little bit lucky because I was forced out of the game. Then I, I stumbled upon this um, opportunity, right? But I've always been thinking about what's life after football, if I'm being completely honest. My dad's always been in my years. Um, you know, you got to think about next. So I actually went to school and I finished my master's in sports management. And I was hoping to land a job. I didn't want to be a coach. I knew that that was quite clear. I didn't want to take the normal route. I was always been intrigued in the commercial side of sports anyway, like how to sell sponsorship, how to monetize sports. And, you know, so I've always been interested in that. But coming back to other athletes, you can, you can quickly see that they don't have that vision. Or it's, it's not the, yeah, some have to be blamed for that. But a lot of us tend to live in this bubble that this day will never come. Right. And when it finally comes, you're like, okay, scramble. What do I, what do I do? Right. Not, you know, I think just, just this week or last week, rather, uh, Delonte West, the former Dallas Mavericks, uh, point guard, he was homeless, uh, substance abuse. And you saw, um, the Dallas Mavericks, um, boss, uh, Mark Cuban, went pick him up from a gas station, put him in a rehab center. In fact, on my show, we were talking yesterday, like, should, you know, sports leagues and clubs do a bit more for athletes in terms of uh, transition for life after sports. 
you see a lot of uh, and and for him it's i mean he he earned 16 million a season right that's a lot of money right so it's not it's not a matter of not having the money it's about what do you do with it like how you make the money work for you and then you're having good people around you i still think that sports leagues and clubs and associations should do a bit more especially if you look in in the in the context of singapore as soon as you finish playing professional football you're on your own the very next day <laughs> yeah. yeah you're on your own right so uh if you call your club they won't want to know you if you if you uh, well unless you're a national team player i still think the fa does a little bit of help helps you a little bit you know point you in the right direction but it's not that they're going to save you that there's no guidance there's no mentorship and that's one of the things that i've been passionate about the work that i do uh, these days of helping athletes especially footballers to make that transition don't wait till the last moment to think about where your next dollar is going to come from ease into it and that's not to say that forget about football and and pay attention to other stuff you're doing but it's always important and key to put those building blocks in place so that eventually when you get there you're not thinking about replace a replacing incomes overnight because that doesn't happen like you can't be earning say 10 15 grand one night and then next morning you wake up and say hey you know this month uh, there's zero dollars coming in right uh so that can be quite painful and we see in many cases right uh, the number of divorce uh, if you look at the the data and stats of professional athletes you know breaking up from the other half especially as soon within a year of retiring is very high because uh, yeah yeah it's 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 high like and and then you talk about substance abuse and you know homelessness I suppose we don't have that much here in Singapore but we have also our had our fair share of athletes especially footballers because I suppose they make the biggest bunch of professional athletes here um going wayward is it's 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 a uh, it's a alarming number the the way the way the world is moving towards uh, uncertain times frequently at least I mean I suppose we all have to think about not so much athletes even though athletes um, provide a good case study for it but how do you think athletes should be thinking about their second phase of their career i think it's important to first of all um think about what what imagine and and kind of future pace yourself to think about what would li- what life would look like after football as much as we don't want to think about it because it's scary uh and a lot of, that's one of the reasons right the the fear of the unknown when you start thinking about it you, you get panicky and you go you got anxiety attacks and all say forget about it we leave it till later right I, but i suppose you got to address the elephant in the room because it's going to happen like <laughs> nobody's running away from it it's going to happen right uh, even if you end up playing till um but kazuyo shimura is still playing at 53 but at some point he's got to stop right <laughs> um but i suppose he made enough money to retire from football but uh if you look at a normal um athlete uh, it it's going to come at some point then start thinking about what are the what are the things that you are passionate about see 80 90% of them end up being coaches because that's what they know they they want to give back something um so they end up taking the route so it also means that starting to skill yourself up getting the necessary licensing um getting the necessary knowledge and you know working as an understudy to more experienced coaches so that's one route somebody else can take um but then there are also athletes now who have actually gone back to school i know quite a few of them they got their masters degree because they've been in school they're working this in the sense that they're in school and finishing their masters program so i i would say that you know spend time uh, work with an organization that actually can give you some flexibility to come in and do some stuff 
right? Uh, projects and stuff like that because there a lot of, I can only speak for footballers, there's a lot of downtime, especially you train once a day. There's yeah. a lot of downtime. Instead of just sitting at home and playing FIFA or hanging around the coffee shops, put on a pants and, 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 and shirt and try and work, maybe intern, you know, with, with an organization that you think that you're going to be working with long term, right? Um, that's for people who, who want to go into that whole space of being employed because entrepreneurship is not for everyone. But at the same time, I think there's a good bunch that want to be entrepreneurs because let's not forget, as a professional athlete, you have a lot of free time. And once you get into a job, and I've seen this with some of the athletes that actually work with us, right? You ask them, you put them behind a computer and they start sleeping afterwards, right? Yeah. Um, so, so if you want to control your time and your freedom, then entrepreneurship is another way. So maybe partnering with people who are already there, learning, and you know, forming business partnerships in different space, right? Uh, can should and must start while you're actually still playing, so that you learn valuable lessons. You learn and you start building something small. Income could be a thousand, two thousand dollars a month, or even less. And then slowly building up towards a ten k, fifteen k, eventually, right? Then when you transition from sports and you get into that, you're prepared. And the roads paved, and the the pathway is quite clear for you to walk that path. Yeah, I suppose that's what they should be looking at, and um, and and, I, and like I said, that's 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 the kind of work I do these days anyway. Problem. Um, well, in that case, what what would you recommend um, athletes, or how would you recommend they think about what would be worth their time once they hit retirement? Like because. Um, I suppose now, even though, you know, business is hard, you know, I mean, in terms of entrepreneurship, the opportunities to, to, to create a business in any industry, in any niche is more possible than ever. Mm. So, I mean, this gives, I suppose, athletes or anyone more avenues to explore. So, like, do you have any ideas, you know, I guess based on experience and the people you coach on, what's a good way to kind of understand what it, what matches their passion but, and the business side of things as well? Let me put it this way. All of us have some sort of uh, superpower. All of us do. It's just that people don't know what we have, right? Because when you look at professional athletes, there's a lot that people can offer. I don't even think twice when we had a large agency to, to hire an ex-athlete or a professional athlete because I know what they bring to the table. Right? They're resilient, they're disciplined, they know how to play by the rules and stuff like that. So if they might not necessarily have the experience, as soon as I know they're athletes or they played some sort of sports at a different level, you're straight in. Because I like, I like those kind of guys, right? There's a reason behind that. It means that you have um, the ability to think in structure, you have the ability to think uh, independently and get results. Because let's not forget athletes, huh? you're under pressure every week. You're judged every week, right? Every week. I don't know another job that you're judged every week. Because in business or in the work, even work we do, some of us are judged by quarter, we judge by the year and stuff like that. That's a lot of time, right? That's a lot of time to, yeah. to mess up and, and, and you know, uh, be, be useful again. But in sports, every week, sometimes thousands of people or even sometimes millions of people watch events and games and, and then start screaming at you and, and it can be intense. So once you have operated under that kind of um, pressure situation, Coming to work is really nothing. Like, it's really nothing, right? So these guys have superpowers. It's just that they don't know what it is. 
right? So then it's to write down on a simple piece of paper and say, what am I really good at, right? What would I teach someone for free, right? I know something and I'm going to teach someone and I'm going to do it completely free. What would I do that? And what is that something that I can actually give them tangible results? So if you say an athlete, first thing that comes to my mind, I know how to get people fit because I walk that path, right? For 10, 15, 20 years, I was taught every day how to eat healthy, sleep, uh, and train. So while you not, might not be a trainer, but you definitely know how to take care of yourself that somebody else might find useful for, right? So it's about finding who this piece of information is useful for. So they should start think, writing all of that down and then writing who should, you know, who can they be a hero to, right? So let's just say, just take an example. Let's say I'm a, I'm a, I'm a swimmer. Maybe football is we use too much, right? I'm a swimmer. I'm a national level swimmer. I know how to go fast. I break, I've broken records. I've gone to all the games. Maybe I might have gone to the Olympics. So this is my credential. This is what I do best, right? So take that and say that, okay, who can I now serve, right? I'm pretty sure that parents with kids will love their kids to be trained by an Olympian, right? For sure, right? Yeah. Okay, so now you need to package that. Like, how would you package that? Then you need to think about what's your offer, right? What is your offer? Uh, are you just going to be another swim coach uh, who teaches condominiums? Are you going to um, work with only elite athletes because you're going to teach them how to reach the heights of uh, being an Olympian? Or you're going to teach older people how to just swim. There are a lot of people who don't know how to swim. So you really need to know what are you passionate about? Because some people say, okay, some swimmers might think, okay, I'm just going to go after kids who want to be an Olympian. Okay? Or some might say that actually, you know what, I'm just going to take it easy because teach some old folks how to swim and they're going to pay me money. So this is what we call segmentation. This is what we call, you know, who you're going to be a hero to. You can't be a hero to everyone, right? As soon as you dial down on that, okay, maybe I'll say it as an example, I want to train kids from, say, uh, 8 to 14 on how to get to the next level, how to swim faster. Okay, that's my, that's my offer. So as soon as, soon as you do that, as, then now you're very narrow, you're very focused on the group that you're going to be a hero to. Now, let's go and find where they hang out because you've got to put your message out there. So a lot of the times, these athletes, what they do have, they, they kind of uh, end up having a, a good following on Instagram or Twitter or even Facebook these days. Uh, I wish I had uh, Instagram or Twitter in my playing time. I probably have quite, quite a few more than I have now. Yeah. Uh, but that's one thing I always tell athletes, like use this unpaid attention that you have. You don't have to pay for the attention because people are following you now, right? When the lights go off, you got to ask for that. You got to pay for that. But right now, people are interested in you, right? If you put out a tweet, that it might get retweeted or reposted and stuff like that. So you've got to leverage that. At some point, that's going to end, right? So if you can say that, okay, hey, by the way, I'm, I'm you know, coming up with a new program. Uh, this is what I do. I'm teaching kids from 8 to 16 to slash 30 seconds or um, 30 seconds too much in swimming. Three seconds <laughs> of, uh, three seconds of your, your 100 meter swimming or whatever it is, right? Your offer is. Anybody interested, send me a DM. So if you do this right, I'm pretty sure you're going to get 10 to 15, to maybe to 20. And if you have a big enough following, I, I dare say you get more than that. Then you need to start putting a price tag on what your service is worth. Some people do it for free, right? Some people say, I just want to give back. Some might say my, uh, my time is worth $100. And it's quite easy to find out. Look at all, just Google quickly to see what are all the other coaches doing. You know what's the market rate, so to speak. 
then you decide whether you want to be premium or you want to be lower, right? So if you're an Olympic athlete, there's no chance you're going to be lower because you've got to be higher, right? Price yourself yeah. higher. Let's just say $100 an hour. It's just a, it's an arbitrary figure. Then you tell people, hey, my first session is free. The next one is $100 a session. Or you come up with a package, say, if you, if you subscribe to my program, it's $200 or $250. I always recommend a, a recurring revenue, which is always good because you can then think about what's coming next. Yeah. Uh, you don't have this feast and famine. So, so you can slowly start seeing this pattern emerging. And then next thing you know, you're doing one group, you're doing two groups, the money's flowing through, and there's so many tech, technology tools that are available today that some are free, some are paid, very little, that you can ent- automate everything from collecting money to scheduling to all of that, right? So yeah. like you said, we live in the best era because everything, technology can do the heavy lifting. Use the turn up there and train. So I have actually given you a very simple steps, very simple steps that how some an athlete can literally get started. I'm, I'm talking about this weekend. In seven days, they can actually get started if they want. Yeah. And, and, and what you spoke about is also something, especially when it comes to recurring, uh, has the potential to scale as well. So, uh, yeah, so I guess that, that's something you, you can teach them in, you know, in your, in your capacity as a coach. Um, I'm, I'm also mindful of your time. So I just, um, I want to ask one final question, um, that I ask most of my guests because it's a, I, I think of it as a reflective question for, for everyone. Um, and that is, what life lesson has taken you the longest to learn? <laughs> Another excellent question. Yeah. I think uh, self-awareness. Because we all think that we can do a lot more than we're actually capable of. I remember this show, I think it's in Scarface. I think um, um, the guy, what's his lead character, says, a man needs to know his limitations, you know? So while we can be forward thinking, we can be gung-ho about a lot of things, but we all have our limitations. And, and, and chasing a false dream is equally um, harmful, um, like being lazy, right? If you're not realistic with, with what you want to do, and a lot of it comes from, from ego. So what I've learned is that I cannot leap with ego. I cannot let my ego take center stage, right? I still make mistakes until today, even though I'm aware. We all do, right? We're just human. That's the way we are built. So I think that was the, one of the life lessons that I've learned over time that, you know, know your limitations. Don't leave with ego. Wherever you have a gap, ask for help. Um, work with people that walk your path or the path that you want to walk and ask for help. And, and I think uh, athletes are notoriously um, guilty of not asking for help because of the ego, because you need a certain level of ego to be a top athlete. Yeah. Uh, but I think you need to lose that as soon as you know, the lights go off. Mm. And how, then I think how, that's, yeah. How, how did you do that for yourself? It's, it's, it's yeah. a lot of uh, um, self-reflection. I think, you know, when, when, you face, when you're faced with a lot of uh, setbacks in life, a lot of challenges, a lot of failures, um, um, at the start of the show, you say very successful in business, but, uh, I'm, I'm, some parts of it you probably know, but I think a lot of people don't know that I've had my equal number of failures. I was, I was just right once. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I was, I was 99% <laughs> of the projects that I did, I failed. I was just right once. So, yeah. uh, and I suppose a lot of entrepreneurs are chasing for the one time they are right. 
right? So, so th- through those life lessons, you pick up quite a lot of things and then you start reflecting, asking yourself, why am I going through all this and why am I here? Uh, I deserve more. Look at that guy, you know, he's not done anything with his life and stuff like that. So, you know, when you get to that space, it's very dangerous. It's not he- healthy for yourself, health, not healthy for your mind or the people around you. So I try and practice that as much as I, as I can. I'm super mindful about that. Simple thing as people cutting me in, the, in the, on the road into my lane. First reaction is, and then you go, oh no, no, you can't, you can't do that, right? So, so it's 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 uh, being there at the moment, recognizing that you are actually going the wrong direction. Quickly changing the way you think uh, to something quickly positive, or and saying that this doesn't matter, given the bigger scheme of things. Somebody might be in a hurry to go to the hospital or something like that. Just just taking your mind away from that. I think it's uh, it's, it's a valuable lesson I've learned in life and i think i will continue to do that because i think i don't think one can master that in in uh, in this journey called life because it's impossible we all are peppered with different situation and circumstances in our life on a daily basis uh, it's just when you stop the moment take a step back and then see from the outside in i think it'll make a lot of sense and, and i hope I've made sense with what I've been trying to tell people in a very long-winded way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, I think self-awareness is really a lifelong pursuit. And 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 how I don't know, I don't know whether you want to say fortunate or unfortunate that as the the older we get and the more we master it, the less time we have to practice it. So Yeah. Yeah. No, you you're spot on. I think you're spot on. But it also makes a difference for me because I've got two young boys, you know, 9 and 7. And I think it's very important that, you know, a character of a child is shaped at a very young age. Uh, you can't leave it till when they are 12, 13, 14, then it's too late to do anything. Um, so my wife and I are very, very mindful that, you know, the values we give them, the thought process behind things, how they conduct themselves as human beings first, and then how they treat others as human beings is extremely important, more important for us than the A's they pick up in school and you know, being you know, scoring a wonderful goal on the pitch, all of that is secondary. Um, I think it starts inside. The incentric motivation is very, very important. So we work very hard at it. Uh, I would say like, you know, because if we can then give them the right values from a very young age, then they will grow up as human beings, not useful for themselves, but also the, the, the society at large. I think uh, that's important. And, you know, um, there's some sort of validation because, because my elder son, Kian, and he's nine years old, has just been picked uh, to be a prefect in school. So, oh, nice. uh, yeah, so, so you can see that, you know, if you, if you, if you plant the seed properly, I think the, the, the fruits turn up well. So, uh, like I said, uh, it's, a, it's a domino effect. Because I'm self-aware, because I'm learning, I pass it on to someone else. And, and this time it's easy because I've got two kids at home. Yeah. And they say, that, you know, charity starts at home. So you've got to start doing that and uh, leading by example. So, yeah, you know, I think that those are the things that are priority for me these days, more than chasing a dream of building a business empire. Yeah. And that's a great way to end it, I think, because, you know, you, you, you gave a lot of insight on what it takes to, to create, you know, opportunities for yourself, but just as important is to make sure that you are contributing to society in a more positive way, I suppose. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, well, Sassy, thanks uh, uh, for really spending time to have a conversation with me. Uh, before before we end, you know, I just want to, you know, give you some time to share the the stuff that you're doing, both as a coach and you know, as a as a radio host. Maybe you want to share what what you do. 
Yeah. So I, when, when it comes to my, my coaching, I've got two levels of coaching. I coach small and medium enterprises on sales marketing, business process, uh, and how to make money most importantly. So for that, you can always reach out to me at, uh, either you can connect with me on, uh, you know, Instagram, um, and Twitter at Blade of God, or just email me at sasikuma at redcutglobal.com. You can put that on the show, show notes. Yeah. Uh, and, but if you're a sports coach looking to start or build your sports coaching business, go to this website called uh, www.sportsbusinessmentor.com and pick up a free, I would say, uh, three-step uh, framework on how you can actually start and build a program yourself, right? A sports business program. So it's a free kind of a download. Go there. And that's how you can connect with me. And uh, like I said, uh, very happy to be here sharing uh, my journey because as a radio host on CNA 938 on the weekend, I ask all the questions. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice break for once to be able to be the guest on somebody else's show. So I'm very grateful for that. And uh, thanks for this opportunity. Yeah, thank, I, I, I'm glad that I was able to, to, to learn from you today as well. So thanks so much, Sassy. Thanks.